Great to see you all this evening. I am so thankful the rain held off this time. It would have been a heartbreaker to miss two in a row. Uh, My name is Ryan, and I would like to welcome you all uh, to week eight of Church in the Open. Before I get into what we're going to get into today, I uh, have an announcement that I might as well just go ahead and make. My wife's pregnant. That's it. So baby number four set to make the advent uh, here in October. I just figured had so much extra time and money, why not have another child? So uh, today we are, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 verses 26 through 40. I got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of things that I am incredibly excited to tell you all. So we might as well just hop right into it. So I'm going to read through this passage on the front end. I'm in Acts chapter 8 starting in Verse 26, it says this, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He'd come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. So when Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? He said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, So he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or another person? So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Then he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in his Otis, and he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. Somebody's excited by that last verse. I like that. I like an amen from time to time. Uh, Acts is is all about the earliest Christianity. And what what we find uh, passage after passage when we move through Acts is uh, what early Christianity was like and where it got its power. And uh, I love the way that that one pastor described this particular passage that we're we're walking through this evening. Uh, He said that this, this passage... Uh, of Philip and this Ethiopian man is a reminder that no matter who you are, Scripture will surprise you. Meaning, no matter um, what culture or class you are from, or what what categories or conceptions you bring with you to the Bible, the Bible will absolutely, quantifiably shatter some of them. This uh, this passage that we're reading is a very surprising, very category-shattering text, and I want to walk through it from three different headings and kind of from three different angles. First, I want to look at, at how this passage shows us the inclusivity of Christianity, then how it shows us the exclusivity of Christianity, 
And then I want to look at the reason and the grounding for both. And the reason that I say that that this is a a category-shattering passage of Scripture is because most people would say, you know, we're very binary thinkers. It's this way or it's that way. And so a lot of people would say that you're either inclusive or you're exclusive. But the truth is, uh, Christianity is both. And as strange as this may sound, on the front end, uh, Christianity can only be as inclusive as it is because of how exclusive it is. And that's what I'd like to try to show you during our time together this evening. So with that, I want to get into our, our first idea. Uh, it's, our, it's the main idea of this teaching. Believe it or not, it's actually the only idea I want to offer you, and it's this. Number one, Christianity is more inclusive and more exclusive than any other religion. One more time, Christianity is more inclusive and more exclusive than any other religion. And, and so I just want to walk through both of those ideas on, on the front end of this teaching. So first off, I want to look at how this shows us the inclusivity of Christianity. And we see that by looking at the main figure in this story. The first thing that we're told about this man God led Philip to is that he was an Ethiopian eunuch. And what that means, commentators will tell you on the one hand, that the, 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 the um, object of this story, uh, this man was a black African. Ethiopia in this day meant uh, the upper Nile region from as far north as Aswan uh, to as far south as a place called Khartoum. It's what we would now refer to as Nubia, which meant that this man in this story was a black African. Secondly, we learned that he was a eunuch, meaning he had been castrated, which was really common if you were, um, if you were uh, not a person from a royal family, uh, but you were being groomed for administrative leadership in the government and therefore working around persons from the royal family, um, the price to get into that, they needed to make sure that, that nothing went on between you and them. And so that's perfect timing. Nice. Uh, and, and so what that meant is that the price to get into that was, was castration. And so this man was a, a eunuch. But thirdly, uh, what we know about this man is that, that being from Ethiopia meant that he was from the outermost known civilized world, so he would have been referred to and understood as a barbarian. So the very first thing that this story shows us that really you know, just sort of jumps off the page at us is how different the, the two people in this story are. Because on the one hand, you have Philip, who's a, he's essentially a middle-class Jewish man. And compared to him, this Ethiopian man was a racially different, sexually altered barbarian could not have been any more different uh, from Philip than he was. The second thing uh, that is impossible to ignore in this passage is how direct God's intervention had to be in order to make sure that this interaction took place. Because what, what you'll see in this story, if you walk through it, is that right on the front end in verse 26, it was an angel of the Lord that spoke to Philip and told him to go to this road where he would meet this Ethiopian man. And then in verse 29, we read that the, that the Spirit actually commanded Philip to go and, and join himself to this man's chariot. That Greek word join literally meant to glue yourself to something. And the reason uh, Philip had to glue himself to the chariot was because it was moving. Uh, and, and he wasn't even invited to sit up in that chariot until we get to verse 31. So when you try to think of, of how this story actually took place, it, 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 it kind of, the way that I think of it was just kind of hilarious because he's just running alongside this guy's chariot, hoping that at some point he'd look down on him, feel bad for him, and invite him to sit up with him. But the point is, interactions like this didn't happen. A Jewish man didn't just hang out with an Ethiopian eunuch. Jewish men in Philip's day were, were, were taught to believe. They actually began their days with a prayer that, thank God, they would say, God, I thank you that you haven't made me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. 
And so they were taught in their day that you don't want to participate with people who are different than you because people who are different than you can defile you before God. This guy was as defiling as individual as possible. And at the end of this story, in, in verse 39, we read, after all this happened, the Spirit of God just carried Philip away. So the point is, everything that happened in this story, every single aspect of it was engineered by divine intervention. So, so the question is, what do we learn from that? What do we learn from this story when we understand how different Philip and this Ethiopian man were and how, how obviously God's hand was at work in bringing the two of them together? And what we learn is at least two things. First and foremost, what we can see in this story is that the Spirit of God strongly desires racial barriers between people to be surmounted. That is one of the most obvious themes when you read through the book of Acts with even a, a casual lens, that over and over again, the Spirit of God is, is challenging God's people to get out of their comfort zone, to get out of themselves, to go toward, to deal with, and to embrace people from different races, different cultures, different geographic locations. All right, Scripture reminds us that, you know, when, when we talk about the Spirit of God, that it actually grieves the Spirit of God when we don't love the things that God loves. And so what that must mean, at least, is that it actually grieves the heart of God, and it grieves the Spirit of God when Christians his people from one particular race or one particular culture either show disdain for or just completely avoid entirely people of another race or another culture. Because listen, listen to the spirit, listen to the voice of the spirit of God, the call of the spirit of God in this passage. It says, Philip, run to that racially different sexually altered man that you would never otherwise have anything to do with and stay close to him. And I'm going to use you to invite him into my family. That's the voice of the Spirit. That's the language of the Spirit of God through Acts. It's the leading of the Spirit of God through Acts, and it's the leading of the Spirit even today. But the second thing that we see in, in this story, that's, uh, uh, again, it's just a, a, a constant theme, story after story all through the book of Acts, is that Christianity does not belong to one culture more than another. All right, if you, if you tuned in online with us last week, we had to call it for weather, but if you tuned in online, uh, you remember that last week we looked at Samaritans getting converted by the gospel. Samaritans, remember, were geographically close to the Jews. They were actually neighbors with them, but racially they were far off. They were alienated. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. Right? And, and in this story, you're seeing an Ethiopian man, a, a man who was not only racially far off from the Jews, but also geographically from the outermost parts of the earth getting converted by the gospel. If you join us next week, you're going to see a Jewish Pharisee get converted. And then the week after that, it's going to be a Roman centurion. And, and what you'll find when you move through the book of Acts is that over and over, Acts is reminding us that there's no one culture that Christianity belongs to more than it does another. Right, at the very beginning of this book, Jesus said that his gospel would start in Jerusalem, it would resonate to Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. That Christianity, before it's said and done, would be something uh, that would go into every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every people group. And this, under, this idea, this understanding that Christianity does not belong to just one culture exclusively, this, this really... Uh, this concept that you find over over again in Acts puts the Bible into direct conflict with the ordinary understanding of how culture and religion relate. Because most colleges, really I, I think pretty much every secular college, secular uh, educational institute today will tell you um, that religion is essentially just an invention of culture because every culture needs solidarity. 
there, there needs to be some kind of glue that keeps culture together. And so one of the ways that cultures historically do that is by sort of spinning out these stories about how the world began and how the world works and what the purpose of life is. And, and those stories basically be, become that, that culture's religion. And so every culture just sort of develops its own religion in order to keep people together. But they're all sort of comparable. There's none that are necessarily right or wrong. It's just what cultures do. That uh, theory, a- according to that theory, what you'll hear is that uh, Europeans and North Americans just sort of developed Christianity. Uh, and, and along with that, South Asian cultures developed Hinduism, and Far Eastern cultures developed Buddhism, Confucianism, Shinto, and then Middle Eastern, some South Asian and North African cultures developed Islam. And, and this theory that, that every culture just sort of invents its own religion, and that's really all religion is, that theory makes sense until you hold it up with, with Christianity, until you really take a hard look at Christianity. And the reason that I say this is because the population centers of all major religions, uh, except for Christianity, are still right near where those religions began. I don't know if, you know, statistics about different religions mean anything to you. If you're anything like me, this next part's really going to fascinate you. But when I I read this this week, this really fascinated me. And maybe this will surprise some of you. But for for example, to kind of prove the point that I'm driving at here. 96% 96% of all Muslims right now live in the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia, which is right where Islam began. In other words, only 4% of Muslims live outside of the geographic area that Islam began. And as sort of uh, right in line with that, 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia, which is where Buddhism began. Uh, and 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia, again, which is right where Hinduism arose. But when you get to Christianity, you'll find something remarkable. What you'll find is that Christianity actually is the only truly worldwide religion. In fact, uh, Tim Keller points this out in his book, uh, Making Sense of God, that, that right now about 25% of Christians in the world are living in Europe. Uh, 25% are in Central and South America. 22% of Christians in the world are in Africa. 15% are in Asia. That number is growing very rapidly. Uh, and, and really only about 12% of all Christians on the planet right now are living in North America. Uh, there's really no other religion. There's no other belief system in the history of mankind that has been as culturally diverse, as able to enter into and transcend cultures like Christianity has. And the reason that I throw all this at you is, is to make one really important point, and, and namely that what this story in Acts chapter 8 is showing us and what the rest of the book of Acts is going to bear out for us, and what the last 2,000 years of world history shows us over and over and over again is that Christianity does not belong to any one culture. It is not the product of any one culture. It stands above all culture, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to recreate Christianity in the soil of every culture. Frankly, he's done a pretty good job for the last 2,000 years because no other belief system has been able to go into new regions, into new cultures, into new people groups like Christianity has. And so therefore, Christianity is the most culturally inclusive of all belief systems. That's the first idea I wanted to offer to you. Now, let me just pause here and point something out. In the culture that we live in, when you start using the word inclusive, you get real popular real quick. 
inclusivity is, is the cardinal virtue in our culture today. And so to hear that Christianity is and actually be presented with the empirical data that proves that Christianity as a religion is the most inclusive of cultural differences, that's a really nice thing to be able to say. But what this passage in Acts 8 also shows us is the exclusivity of Christianity. And I don't think I have to spend a lot of time on this because it's really not hard to prove that Christianity makes exclusive truth claims. You can see them right here in this passage. Because here in verse 34, we read the eunuch was, was reading a passage from the book of Isaiah, and he asked Philip what the passage he was reading was all about. And what speaks to me is that Philip did not answer this Ethiopian man like a good postmodernist would. In other words, <laughs> I get a chuckle out of this. He doesn't say uh, to the Ethiopian man, well, you just have to decide the meaning of that text for yourself because it could mean something entirely different for you than it does for me. And who am I to say whose interpretation is right and wrong and who's valid and who's not valid? He didn't go down that road at all. What Philip tells this Ethiopian man is that that passage you're studying right now is about one person and only one person. His name's Jesus Christ, and he is the center of the entire word of God. And Philip goes on, according to this story, to, to preach the gospel to this man, the good news of Jesus, which, you know, let's not forget, is an incredibly exclusive message. It's a message that salvation is available to all by grace through faith, exclusively through Jesus Christ. And so the man in this story is not being told, you know, you just need to relate to God as you understand him and serve him in a way that's meaningful to you. He's being taught the exclusive truth claims of Christianity because Christian, Christianity is a very exclusive belief system. And I just want to, if I can kind of camp here for a moment and press this, as strange as this may seem, again, let me offer this to you. I believe a case can be made. That's why I gave you the stats on the front end of this teaching. I believe a case can be made that Christianity is the most culturally inclusive belief system there is. However, I believe a case can also be made that it is the most exclusive belief system that there is. And the reason I would say that is because every other religion has a founder who is basically a prophet at the center of that belief system. And that, that, the message of that prophet can essentially be, be boiled down to what the founder of every other major religion, if you had to boil down what their message is, what it essentially boils down to is this, here's how to find God. And so this idea that, that religion is, is basically, you know, they're all saying the same thing. It's just different paths to the same God, like we're walking up different sides to the mountain, but we're kind of all going to the same summit. That idea, it, again, it almost makes sense. I can understand where you would get that idea until you compare other religions to Christianity. Because the Buddhist way to God is the eightfold path, and the Hindu way to God is the five pillars. Uh, and so that kind of seems like, all right, well, those are just slightly different paths to the same place. But then you come to Christianity, and you come to something unique. Because the founder of Christianity is obviously Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus did not say, like every other founder of every other major belief system did, Jesus did not come down here saying, I'm here to show you how to find God. Jesus came down here and said, I'm God, and I've come down here to find you, because you could never make it up the mountain on your own. Now, I don't have to tell you that's a different message entirely. Lots of people have come to this planet, be it Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith, and they've claimed to help you be able to find God, but only Jesus said, I'm God, and I've come all this way to find you. That's, that's, that's a different message than that of other belief systems. And see, if you have one religion, one belief system that's not like the others, in which the founder of that belief system is saying, I am the God you're seeking, then that religion, that belief system is either far better because that man's telling the truth or it's far worse because he's lying and misleading billions of people. 
Christianity has to either be far better or far worse, but what it can't be is simply one more option. Jesus has removed that as a possibility for us. And so what I, what I wanted to show you on the front end of our time together is that on the one hand, Christianity is the most inclusive when it comes to culture, but on the other hand, it's the most exclusive when it comes to claims. And so the question is, how, does that, how can that be? How do these two ideas come together? How can they be reconciled? And the only way to understand how these two ideas come together is, is by understanding who this Ethiopian man in this story really was and why he was doing what he was doing when Philip found him. And really everything that we need to understand about him is found in this passage in one verse. It's chapter 8, verse 27. Let me read it to you. It says, There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. I just want to pause there. So what, what we see there is, is that this man, at, at, his, at his core, he's a eunuch who's reached the top of the ladder. All right, first off, when it says that he was a high official who was in charge of the entire treasury, what this basically means is that this man was the CFO of the entire Ethiopian kingdom. I don't want to offend anybody, but I think it's, I think I'm not going to be proven wrong when I say that the man in this story is more successful than any of us will ever be no matter how hard we work. Because however good you are at your job, you're probably not going to be the chief financial officer of the kingdom of Ethiopia in your lifetime. But this man was. He had achieved an insane amount of power, and an insane amount of success, but obviously he had made an insane sacrifice in order to get to where he was. Namely, he had become a eunuch. And you have to remember that he'd made that sacrifice in a time and in a culture that was nothing like the individualistic culture that you and I find ourselves in. Because in our culture, uh, in, in our very individualistic culture, you get your self-worth mainly from your own achievements. But in this man's culture, uh, you only had honor if your family's standing was good. You got your sense of self-worth from your family. And so you really had no way of having a legacy or passing on the honor that you had managed to accrue in your lifetime apart from having children. And so here's a man who had made the ultimate, literally the ultimate sacrifice in order to get to where he thought he wanted to be in life, in order to get power, in order to get success, in order to climb this ladder that he was climbing. He'd given up the ability to have a family in a culture that was dominated by family. And in so doing, he got into the top. But here's the question that this story kind of begs that's so obvious that, you know, despite seeing this and reading this story my whole life, I've never even asked this question. The story that this question begs is what is a guy with that amount of success and that amount of power and that amount of everything that we're told is supposed to make us happy? Why is this guy taking a 1,000-mile journey to Jerusalem to worship at the temple? Because don't, don't forget that, that making this decision to travel to the temple was incredibly, it was an incredibly dangerous thing to do personally. I mean, traveling in that day and age and all those abandoned backwoods, desert roads invited, you know, the, the opportunity to be attacked by robbers and thieves and raiders and all that kind of stuff. So this man was inviting great risk into his life personally, but not just personally, he was inviting great risk into his life professionally. Because when you took a 1,000 mile journey, you were gone for a pretty long time. And, and while you were gone, that jeopardized, jeopardized your position, and it made it highly likely that someone would come in from, from, from underneath you and, you and usurp you while you were gone. And so why would this man do that? And the only answer is, and maybe, maybe a lot of us can sympathize with what I'm about to say, the only reason that this man would do what he's doing in this story is because all the things that he'd worked so hard for and all the things that he'd sacrificed so much for didn't give him what he thought it was going to give him. And it left him with, with nothing but this enormous emptiness inside of him. 
And so he was at this point in his life where he got interested in the God of the Bible, and he told himself, maybe there's something for me in Jerusalem. And so he decided to go into worship at the temple. But here's the other thing we know about this man's life. We know that after he got to the temple, after he, he, he made that, that perilous journey and risked everything in order to make that journey, we know that once he got there, they wouldn't have let him in. Because the temple and all of its worship in this day was regulated by Mosaic law. And Mosaic law had all these rules about who could get in to the temple and worship God and who could not. And the rules were meant to basically convey a spiritual reality that you don't just waltz into the presence of God. That, that you and I need to be cleansed because of our sin. Something needs to be done with our sin. And the presence of God is not something to be just walked into casually. And so there were all of these rules that governed who and how you worship and enter into the presence of God. But some of those rules permanently excluded some people for life. And one of the groups of people that, according to the Mosaic Law, could never enter into the temple and worship, sure enough, were eunuchs. Meaning this guy went to all this trouble, risked everything that he had just to get to Jerusalem and be excluded. Just to be left on the outside looking in. So I was thinking when I put this together on the front end, I was going to say, so you can imagine the disappointment, but I don't think you can. I don't think I can. I think we would have a real hard time understanding the kind of soul-crushing disappointment that the man in Acts chapter 8 was experiencing when God brought Philip into his life. So he's on the way home from from the temple, and he's pouring over the book of Isaiah. Now ask yourself the question, why is it that he would do that? Based on the passage that he brought up and asked Philip about, we know that this man was reading from Isaiah 53. But in Isaiah 56, just verses ahead of where he was, this is what he would have read. I want to read this to you from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 5. It says, No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, Look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Now imagine this Ethiopian eunuch's reaction when he read in the Isaiah scroll God's promise to people like him that if he kept God's covenant that God would give him a name better than sons and daughters. What, What he was being offered there in his own cultural terms was a salvation that went not only beyond power and success but even beyond family which is something that he never dreamed would have existed because no other God in any other belief system offered what this God in the Isaiah scroll was offering him. So so with that in mind, I just want to look at the specific passage that he was pouring over when God brought Philip into his life. It's found in verse 32 and 33. It says, now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And I want to fixate on this question. Who will describe his generation? Other versions of scripture will translate that. Who can speak of his descendants? 
And so what this Ethiopian man was reading in the Isaiah scroll, this is exactly how he would process these words. Here's somebody who voluntarily became like a lamb who was slain and voluntarily chose to become someone who had no descendants, who could have no descendants. In other words, somebody who became just like a eunuch. And just as this Ethiopian man was reading this passage, wondering who on earth this passage was referring to, God brought Philip into his life, and he asked the question, hey, do you need any help understanding anything you're reading? And so the Ethiopian man turns to Philip right away, and he asks who this passage is referring to. Is Isaiah talking about himself, or is there somebody else that I need to know? And Philip, right then and there, came up into that man's chariot, and he explained to him who the man was who became like a eunuch for all mankind. And this story tells us that, that Philip preached the gospel of Jesus to this Ethiopian man. And in preaching the gospel to this man, he would explain to him, he would have said, friend, that Mosaic law that excluded you from being able to serve, to, to even enter into the presence of God in the temple, that Mosaic law was given to us by God just to convey this really important reality that all of us are cut off from a relationship with God, that every single one of us deserves to be excluded from the presence of God because of our sin. But God sent his own son, Jesus, to come down here and fulfill that Mosaic law for us. And at the end of his life, he went to the cross, and he took our sin upon himself, and he called out on that cross, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what was happening in that moment is Jesus was being excluded from a relationship with God for us so that we could be brought in. And that message so melted that Ethiopian man's heart that Philip could not keep him from getting baptized at the first sight of water. Now, let me return to what I began this kind of final move with. As strange as this may sound, I said this on the front end, Christianity can only be as inclusive as it is because of how exclusive it is. The reason it is inclusive of all cultures and all people from all backgrounds and can go to all of them and be extended and transcend all of those barriers is because and only because it's about a salvation offered exclusively by grace through faith in Jesus. What I'm trying to drive home to us is, is, is this. The reason that Christianity has been able to do what no other belief system has, has been as mobile uh, as it has been, as transcendent of every barrier that mankind has erected among itself. The reason that Christianity has been able to rise above that is because Christianity levels the playing field and it tells us that we've all sinned, that we all stand shoulder to shoulder before a holy God and the only hope that any of us have is that God would extend grace toward us. And understand that, it, that if God had, had done things in any other way, if, God, if, if Christianity was about a salvation that you could achieve, or a self-worth that you could earn, or an identity that you had to construct through your effort and your morality and your discipline and your ability to keep the rules perfectly, then you could look down on other people. And Christianity would have never been able to transcend culture like it has because there would be you know, such arrogance and condescension and feelings of superiority. But the gospel shows you a God who was willing to become weak for you and is willing to offer you a salvation that you can only receive if you first humble yourself and admit how weak you really are. Christianity is not for the strong. It's for people who know that they're not. And when you receive God's free gift of grace, 
it will, it will elevate you to the stars. It will affirm you to the stars. When you, when you begin to understand how loved you are in God because of Jesus, it will elevate you in ways that, that nothing else can. But in order to receive God's free gift of grace means that you don't get to feel superior to anybody for the rest of your life. That you don't get to look down on anybody from any people group or any class, or any background, or any race, or any tribe, or any tongue, or any culture. That's why Christianity has been able to, and is still able to, break through cultural barriers in a way that no other belief system has, can, or ever will. And the only reason that God can offer this kind of grace that we're talking about here is because of this concept that was being taught in the Isaiah passage that this Ethiopian man was pouring over on his way home from Jerusalem. I've heard it said that the text he was, he was reading in Isaiah, it really is, it's the, it's the heart of the entire message of Scripture because it's all about substitutionary sacrifice. I'm going to call the worship team up, and I just want to leave you with this. Everything in Scripture really brings us back to this one central idea, and it's that your salvation is not something that you earn. But Jesus has come in your place, and he has done what is required of you on your behalf. Everything in Scripture, in some way, shape, or form, when we understand it rightly, it brings us back to that. And the Bible sometimes talks about what Jesus has done for us in the language of the battlefield, how Jesus fought the powers of sin and death for us. Right? Sometimes it talks about what Jesus has done for us in the language of the marketplace, how Jesus paid the price, how Jesus paid our debt. Sometimes it talks about what Jesus has done for us in the language of the temple, that Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for us once and for all so that we can be cleansed and led into the presence of God, acceptable and holy in his sight. Or sometimes scripture talks about it in the language of the law court, how Jesus stood in our place and he took our punishment and he took our penalty and he now lives to intercede on our behalf. But the, but the, the common thread running through every single one of those metaphors is this, this concept of substitution. See, the most, the most compelling, the most electrifying, the most emotionally moving idea in any, any piece of art, in any film, in any book, in any story throughout history is the idea of someone laying his life down for others. And if you know that someone has done that for you, nothing will change you more than that. And that's what the gospel really is at its core. And when you know that Jesus has taken your place so that you could have his there is nothing, there's nothing. You'll never be the same when you understand it. And like Philip, it will transform you into an agent of racial reconciliation, giving you a heart for people that you would not ordinarily otherwise have a heart for. It'll, it'll make you an agent for the spread of the gospel. But more than anything else, it'll transform you in ways that nothing else can. And I just want to leave you with this. Ask yourself this. Think about this. What if we were a group of people that was known for that? that was known for how holistically we were transformed because of what our God has done for us in Jesus. What if we build our lives on that? That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I just want to ask you to make everything that we just looked at in the second half of Acts chapter 8 real to us. God, that, that we, would, we, would, we would find our identity in, we would build our lives on, we would derive our sense of self-worth in this reality that Jesus has, has, has come down here and he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he has offered a life-transforming, life-giving relationship by grace through faith in his name with you, that now we can come to you as, as, as our heavenly father, God. Let that transform us in all the ways that you want to see us transformed. 
Let us be a group of people who are so transformed by the gospel that like Philip, it causes us to go into the lives of the people that you, you, you transform, that you, that you place around us, God. That we would be so moved that a Savior who was nothing like us came to us and laid his life down for us that we would go and do likewise. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.